1: Hello there, this is Talk Sport. Welcome to Fight of My Life with me, Russ Williams, and him, Spencer Oliver. And over the course of the hour, we're going to be speaking to a former boxer about the defining fight of their career. The build-up, the story behind it, the aftermath, the lot. Quite a story on the way for you. On today's show, we're going to be speaking to this man.
2: Frenchman Thierry Jacob in his hometown of Calais and with huge support among this 15,000 crowd up against Britain's former world flyweight champion, Duke McKenzie
3: They've done a number on me, I promise you.
2: In prospect, an excellent fight for the vacant European Bantamweight Championship.
3: Somebody actually spat at me on the ring walk. It was horrible. So people were trying to slap me on the ring walk. And
2: here's Jacob. Big advantage for him being here in his hometown of Calais. All of a sudden, about four French
3: guys came into my change room, just stormed straight in and was trying to intimidate me. They got me so wild, so ready, so up for the fight.
2: Look at that from Mackenzie. It's almost to say to the crowd, I'm not uh, put off by. All your chanting. I get back to the corner
3: and I'm ready to jack. I'm saying to myself, I'm not coming out for another round.
2: Well, it's been a bit of a lackadaisical performance by Mackenzie and he's caught by a left hook.
3: He looked me right in the eye and he whispered in my ear, and said to me, if you f***ing quit, he said, you are beaten dinner by candlelight, son. He said, grit your teeth. He said, get out there, he said, and fight.
1: Well, there you go. Before we hear from little man Mackenzie Spencer, what fight are we going to be talking about? There is a bit of a twist, isn't there? And how do you sum up Duke as a fighter as well?
4: Well, yeah, Russ, this fight was for the vacant European bantamweight title. Now, Duke McKenzie was a former IBF flyweight title. He was moving up, having his second fight at bantamweight. He was 23-1 going into this fight, and it was a fight that Duke McKenzie would lose. But he would then say it was a fight that moulded him as a fighter and turned his career around. And he went on to win three world titles at different weights. But this was the fight that Duke McKenzie chose as his defining fight—the European bantamweight title. Duke McKenzie,
1: MBE, welcome to Fight of My Life.
4: I really appreciate the, uh,
3: the invitation. It's very decent of you and uh, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: The interesting thing about the fight that you've chosen, as Spencer was saying in the intro to the show, is one that, that didn't go your way. And obviously we're going to come on to the fight, Duke, in, in quite a lot of detail later on. Do you remember how the fight came about. Do you remember where you were when you found out that you were going to have to go to Calais in France and fight uh, Jacob?
3: Yeah, Mickey Duff, my manager, called me and said, Duke, come to my office. Uh, I've got some good news for you. Uh, I'd been in- inactive for a little while, but he said to me, I've got you a, a vacant European title fight. I think the uh, the champion before me was a guy called Fabrice Benescu. He vacated the title and he then matched me with Thierry Jacob." of France for the vacant European bantamweight title. The EBU title was a very prestigious championship to have. It was effectively like a world title fight. Because if you won that, you knew you was going on to bigger things, onto the the world scene at least. Now, I was reasonably well-schooled boxer, and obviously I'd been a European champion prior to this, at at the weight below, at flyweight. I'd had the fight against Charlie Magri. I'd boxed in America several times. So I was like well-traveled going to Calais in France to fight Jacob for the European title, it didn't really worry me at all, and it was for the vacant title. So in my mind, I'm thinking i got a 50% chance of winning this fight, and Mickey Duff had always said to me he would never put me in a fight where he didn't think I could win,
1: ever. You were the underdog, weren't you, going into this fight? Yeah. With many people. Did you feel like the underdog?
3: Yeah, I felt like the underdog. It was a good feeling, though, because, you know, they always say an underdog will come to life, or it's always good when an underdog comes to life. I'd watched Jacob several times on video, and I really fancied the fight, because I'd had a really good record against southpaws. He was right-handed. When I won my first world championship, that was against a right-handed fighter, another southpaw, Rolando Bohol. So, in my mind's eye, I was saying to myself, you know, I can win this fight. I had defended the European flyweight title abroad as well, so I I was more than ready for it in in my own mind. But obviously, Jacob had... (laughs) he had had different ideas and this fight really shaped my character as a boxer he was so well prepared and when we fought his mindset was you know he was prepared to give everything and leave everything in that ring as I did so the build-up to the fight was pretty classic it was a real they'd done a number on me I promise you when the fight was first announced we're going to Calais They've arranged all our transport, they've arranged the hotel, they've arranged where we're going to eat and what we've got to do, one thing and another. So me and my coach, Colin Smith, uh, was meeting Mickey Duff over there with Danny Mancini over there. We got on the ferry, we got over there, and that's when the nightmare began. They picked us up from from the ferry, Jacobs people. They drove us around for four hours. It was like being on a Formula One race with Lewis Hamilton, They drove us on the motorway. We was driving like 100 miles an hour, cutting across lanes, you know, nearly hitting cars, bouncing off cars, four-hour trek, and I felt physically sick. Now, there's a distinct breakdown in communication because these guys made out like they couldn't speak a word of English, and we was trying to say to them, you know, you need to slow down or you need to just calm down, you know, because I felt really sick. And bearing in mind, as a professional fighter, I've got to make weight. So I haven't eaten because I don't know what my weight is officially, and even when we came off the motorway and we was driving through the town, this guy was driving on the wrong side of the road. I know they drive on the wrong side of the road anyway, but this guy was driving on the wrong side of the road. He nearly he nearly crashed into another car. He got out of the car, started a big argument with the guy in the car. They got into a bit near enough, a bit of a punch up and there was a bit of a scuffle going on. This took another hour or so to get sorted out. We wanted to go to the gym to check our weight. We got to the gym. The gym was locked. I couldn't check my weight. And at this point then, Danny Mancini turned up with Mickey Duff and Mickey went, right, that's it, we're going to go and get some scales. So me and my coach, Colin, we started trekking around for a shop to go and buy some weighing scales and, we, had, and we, we, we checked our own weight and we started doing things our own way at this time. So we're talking like maybe like six hours now into the day, no drink, no food, no water, uh, very irritable, very moody, fed up and just wanted to check my weight. So... Once we got to the actual um, the gym where we was going to check our weight and we started talking to a few people, now they're saying to me, you've got to have a medical. Now, I'd already had a medical over here. I'd been to Harley Street. Uh, all Mickey Duff fighters did that. You go to Harley Street, you have your medical, you get the clear bill of health, you get your certificate from the doctor, which you produce on site once you get there. They wasn't having any of that. Apparently, the medical that I had wasn't good enough. So now I've got to wait for their doctor to arrive have a medical with their doctor. This has taken another couple of hours out of my day. And then after seeing the doctor, I had to wait another couple of hours before I could actually check my weight because you had to see the doctor do the whole process. Now I'm, a, I'm about a pound over the weight. So now I'm thinking to myself, I've got to make weight a little bit. It was only a pound and I'd moved up to, this is my second weight division that I'd moved to. So a pound or two wasn't too bad. So skip that off, did a check weight. and Now I'm bang on the weight. This is the night before the fight. So I have a very light meal to eat. Uh, a little bit to drink. But in my mind, all I'm saying to myself is, I'm going to smash this guy. Terry Jacobs is going to get it because i have about to suffer all of this. It was like a bit of an injustice, to be honest with you, because they took a bit of a liberty. So I thought to myself, I'm going to smash this guy to pieces. I'm just going to go in there and I'm going I'm to walk straight for him and he's going to get it because, like I said, was, I was very confident at that point. He, on the other hand, had, had other ideas. And it's the first time in my life where I've been to a weighing. There must have been two thousand people at, at the weigh in. It was packed. And they were all baying for blood. My blood. So as we've got to the uh the official weighing the next day, I was like um just sort of like eyeballing him and trying to psych him out a little bit and one thing or another, but he never made eye contact with me at all. He wouldn't look at me, pretty much kept his back to me the whole time. Even when he got on the scales and checked his weight, uh, he didn't look at me. And I just thought, yeah, this guy's, you know, he's um, he's scared because he won't make eye contact with me. I had nothing really to say. Whatever he did say was in French anyway, so I didn't really understand it. And I'd just like to backtrack a little bit. So the night before the fight at the hotel, i have gone to bed about eight o'clock. Nine o'clock, there's a knock on the door. i gone to the door, there's nobody there. So I thought, all right, you know, go to bed. Went to bed. Two hours later, there's a, someone kicking on my door. Went to the door, there's no one at the door. Three o'clock in the morning, someone's near enough kicking the door in. And my coach leapt out of the bed and was chasing somebody down the hallway. So all these little things they were doing were trying to get inside of my head and rile me, which they did because I hadn't been used to any this kind of treatment before. And I went down to reception. Colin said to me, go down to reception. We'll change your room. I went on a different floor completely just to try and get a good night's sleep because they'd interrupted my sleep pattern. And all these little things were devised to take me off my game, which it did. So the next morning, I said to Mickey Duff, I told him what had happened. And then obviously, he'd made his general sort of inquiries about it and tried to see what was going on. But it all fell on deaf ears and it wasn't going to change anything anyway. That was gone. But when I started to put the pieces to the jigsaw together and I was just starting to work out what was actually going on, they'd done a pretty good job of me because I'm. I fought a fight that I don't. I'm not normally accustomed to, to, to fighting. I'm a boxer through and through. I'm not a fighter. But they got me so riled, so ready, so up for the fight and come fight day i was just so on point in my own mind of what i was going to do and that was win
1: this fight inside the distance but obviously jacob had different ideas you've described brilliantly the underhand tactics and going over to france and you were up against it um, do you remember anything about, i mean for the weigh-in you said there was two thousand people there the atmosphere in general was it unfriendly towards you and the rest of your team?
3: I'd never experienced anything like it. I mean, the ring walk itself, never never mind the weigh in, the weigh in was very intimidating in its own right. I'd never been to a weigh in before where there's maybe 2,000 people. You know, I'm a small town guy, I'm not a massive draw in, in the sport. But however, once I walked into the, uh, uh, the weigh in, and when I got to the way and it was like all eyes on me. I mean, everybody was just looking at me, staring me out, you know, speaking in French, making all kinds of gestures and one thing and another. But um, it was quite intimidating. But when we got to the actual fight itself, there must have been at least eight, ten thousand 10,000 people screaming at the top of their voice. I mean, you could not hear yourself think, let, let alone speak. They was, I couldn't even hear myself talk to myself, but... I couldn't even hear myself think. When my coach was talking to me in the run-up to the fight, in the walk-up, the ring walk, I couldn't hear a word he was saying. And my brother Dudley, who was also with me at the time, my brother Dudley would always be whispering in my ear, you know, getting me sight and ready, and he'd have his hand on the back of my shoulder and be saying one thing and another. I couldn't hear a word he was saying whatsoever. So it was like a, it was like a, an absolute a wall of sound. All you could hear was, like, these people just screaming, and they wanted blood, and, you know... They got my blood ultimately. You
0: can't touch this. You can't touch this. Now there is Duke McKenzie
2: looking to carve out a new career at Bantamweight. And here's Jacob, the 25 year old Frenchman. A record of 33 wins and three defeats for Jacob. Formerly regarded as a red hot prospect, but hasn't been able to claim one of the, what is it, now four versions of the world title available and there's mckenzie who lost his flyweight crown to dave mccauley a couple of years ago away they go then 12 rounds of boxing for the european bantamweight crown
1: in of my life, Fong. Talk sports Spencer Oliver and me, Russ Williams, in the company of June McKenzie. We're talking about Duke's fight of his life for reasons that he's going to explain before the end of the show in Calais in France. Difficult place to go against Thierry Jacob, the Frenchman, 12 three-minute rounds. And uh, what a fight it turned out to be. Lots of incident, very unfriendly atmosphere. And, of course, European venues for British fighters were always... Uh, very difficult places to go and actually get a result, but it's the morning of the fight, you've got all this pent-up frustration and anger uh, over how you were treated from the moment you got off the ferry, yeah. let's be honest. Yeah, It must have been quite hard to sort of temper that and control that on the morning of the fight. You knew what you were going to achieve in your mind, but that anger, it can work against you as well as for you, can't it?
3: Yeah, listen, it can leave you a little bit drained and a little bit sapped of energy because I was so, I was more angry than anything, hadn't really happened to me previously, but where I'd moved up to my second weight division, I was physically very strong, felt physically strong, so I was eating and drinking what I liked really, to a degree, so I didn't really think it would bother me that much because I just thought I could get out the starting blocks really quick, just go and attack it and just, you know, put it on him really.
4: Let's get to the venue. You you arrive at the venue. You get into your dressing rooms. What was going through your mind at this point? You'd been messed around in the build-up to the fight. You knew then that the gods might not have been with you on the night. You get into the dressing rooms. What was the typical dressing room for Duke McKenzie? What was going through your mind? So there's
3: uh, me, my brother Dudley, Danny Mancini, Colin Smith, my coach, and Mickey Duff. And um, Oh, and uh, I brought a guy with me. One of my pals, a guy called Peter DeFratis. He was like my sort of head of, not security, but he was there to look after me on fight day. Suspense. we're in the changing room. I was sort of pacing up and down. I'd had a little bit of a skip. And then again, all of a sudden, about four French guys came into my changing room, just stormed straight in and was like trying to intimidate me. And then De Freitas looked at one of these guys and literally put his hand around his neck and choked hold him. <laughs> I'm not joking. He choked, he choked hold this guy and dragged him outside. And then I just heard crash, bang, wallop outside the door. And as I opened, as the door sort of like, I just saw a little bit, door became ajarred a little bit. I see one guy like on the deck. Like, so De Freitas had obviously chinned somebody and it's all kicked off outside the changing room door. Now I'm thinking to myself, this is...
4: It's just, it's crazy. Mm. It's just, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, this is not a typical thing that happens at a no. boxing thing. <laughs> no. This would only ever happen, no. by the way, because back in the day, when you travelled to Europe, you know, there was a great saying that we used to say, is if you, you know, you'd have to get the knockout to get the absolutely, win. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and you're, it was very difficult, more difficult than it is now to win a title out there. So you've got all this stuff going on in the build-up. Yeah. You're in the dressing rooms. I mean... Did you think at this stage it was going to play a part in what would happen in the contest?
3: No, not at all. I I just thought to myself, as far as I I was concerned, I was just going to go out there and I was going to take him out. By hook or by crook. I was either going to cut him to pieces or I was going to get a clean knockout or a stoppage. There was only going to be one victor in my mind.
4: But you would never normally think like that as a boxer. No. Your your, your boxing style, your boxing personality, that was not the way that Duke McKenzie would normally think. No, not at all. Like I say, they
3: really did a number on me because I was fighting. I played into his hands. I really did. But unbeknownst to me, what was going on and what their tactics were, they'd obviously used these tactics before. I was a little bit out of control, for the want of a better word. My Mm. mind wasn't really where it should have been because I'm normally very calm, very calculated, very cool in the whole build-up. I've had guys badmouth me before, not rise to it. But this time, for the first time, It actually worked, but it worked against me.
1: So you're in the dressing room and you're 100% certain, Duke, what's going to happen in this fight. You're going to take care of Thierry Jacob. Then you do the ring walk. Yes. And the reality is that he's got this partisan support. Did that make you think, hello, I might have a bit of a job here, perhaps bigger than I thought?
3: Yeah, listen, as I came out into the arena, as I said to you, I couldn't even hear myself think... And it's the first time that I'd boxed in a very hostile environment to the point where it didn't matter where I made eye contact in that, in that, in that arena, people just looked at me with like real venom in their eyes. Somebody actually spat at me on the ring walk. It was horrible. People were trying to slap me on the ring walk. And again, I'd boxed abroad before. I defended my European Flyweight Championship in Italy very successfully, but it was nowhere near, nowhere near what I was experiencing in France. So I'm saying to myself now, i got to take this guy out because I'm just not standing for it. Do you see what I mean? You know, these people, they want blood, but they're going to get his and I'm just going to wipe the floor with him because, you know, I'm Duke McKenzie. But like I say, once we've actually got into the ring and I was walking up the steps, it's the first time Jacob made eye contact with me. So now I'm thinking to myself, it's game on because he's ready for it and I'm ready for it. As we got into the ring and I made eye contact with him, now I'm starting to do my psychological breakdown on him. I looked at his shorts, he had like black shorts on with a pink stripe down the side, they were three quarter length, he had black boots on, he was very thick set, but I had about an inch in height on him. So my thing was, everything I throw, I throw long and I throw it hard and I throw it over the top of his guard because he was a little bit shorter than me. The very first shot I caught him with, I caught him quite cleanly with with a good jab and I hit him quite solidly, but then when his jab came back at me, it had a thud behind it. It sort of hit me and it it caught me very cleanly. and I thought, okay. And then if you look at the fight again, Spence, he hits Mm. me with a body shot straight in the first round. I'm thinking to myself, you know,
4: he's physically quite strong I think it was evident from the first round That you knew it was going to be in for a tough fight You know, Jacob was a seasoned campaigner You could tell that he'd come to win this title It was the vacant European title You had a pretty good start, if I'm honest, Duke You know, you took the centre of the ring Which was quite unusual You are working everything behind a jab And for me, I think you just edged around
2: In this opening round, Jacob hasn't done too much If anything, Mackenzie just shading it For my money at the moment That's a good jab from him too
4: we get into round two. Now, Jakob now starts picking up cuts. I mean, did that boost you on? Because he started picking up some bad cuts. And this is early in a fight. You know, we've got to go 12 rounds. We're in round two. And all of a sudden, the man in the opposite corner is looking really marked up. He's looking like he was in round 10 or 11, if I'm honest.
2: He's worked quite well behind that southpaw jab. And then the head's coming close together. And that's opened up a cut. And the Frenchmen are not at all happy about that. They think that may well have been a but by McKenzie. And those heads coming perilously close together again there. Well, drama in the second round. Jacob cut around the head. He looks to have one cut on the side of his head and one underneath that left eye. And
4: again, those heads. Did you think at that point you was going to get the fight done inside the distance?
3: Yeah, listen, we ain't going 12 rounds. This is the second round, Spence. And I'd hit him with some very good shots. Like I say, elbow, head. I was starting to get through with clean shots also. And he was starting to bleed. Now, as I said, if this fight would have been in, in my backyard, they would have stopped it in two rounds because mm. he was cut quite badly early on. But they didn't. They let the fight continue and it just started to get a little bit more messy because sure. if you look at his face, uh, Spence, that cut he got above his right eye was a bad
4: cut. Yeah. I bet it was about at least two inches long. It was a, it was a really bad cut, and then we get into the third round, and he picks up another cut, and he yeah. picks one up over the left eye, and it's yeah. equally as bad. Now things are not looking good for Jakob at that stage, and then all of a sudden, out of blue, you get deducted a point.
2: And again, there's a clash of heads, and this time, McKenzie is having a point deducted for dangerous headwork. Round three, one point deducted, which means. That even if he was to win the round,
4: and I think you'd say he was winning it at the moment, it would be scored even. Do you feel at that stage that the gods are against you, and everybody in that arena, plus the referee, were against you that night as well?
3: well another thing is, is that during the fight, the referee was so biased. You know, I, I think after the fight, I think the referee might even have been his uncle or something like that because <laughs> no, I suppose he was just so. It didn't matter what I did or how I did it. He mm-hmm. was warning me for it. Every time there was a, an infringement or we got close together, he'd break us up. And every time we got close together, and as soon as the referee went break, Jacob he'd hit me mm. straight on
4: the break. Well, Jacob was the one that was actually coming in. We watched the fight and we boxed it back, and, and it, it's an unbelievable fight. It really is a war from round one to yeah. round 12. But in the third round, Jacob's the one that's actually coming in with a heads low, and your head. He's sort of catching, but he comes off worse. Mm, mm. You know, it He's was it was forward. one of those situations. Yeah. From me watching the fight, I just thought, you know what, it's going to be a tough night for Duke McKenzie. But I also think he was trying to get me disqualified because if you look at the look at the cuts that he had,
3: it was like fifty fifty. But he came in, well, sorry, 60-40 in if his favor. If, if it was his, his
1: Duke, it would have been
3: stopped, wouldn't it? A million percent. There, there is, I don't think there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a decent referee, certainly in this country, mm. and we had some A-grade referees uh, back then that would have stopped the fight. I'm, I'm absolutely certain of that. You know, I mean, listen, you give as good as you take and, you, you know, you take, your, you take your licks, as they say. But once he started to cut, and I, was, I, could, I could see, the, you know, the blood was coming into his eyes, but then I think it was round three or round four, after the, the warning that I got, the point deduction that I got, when he sat down, whatever they was putting in his cup was an illegal substance. I'm pretty sure because Mm. it wasn't Vaseline like you are allowed to use. Mm. It 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 was a yellow substance and all of a sudden the cuts just stopped. Mm. Now I'm thinking to myself, that's not natural. One minute he's got, he's bleeding profusely and the next minute there's no blood at all. Mm. So I'm saying to myself, how is this possible in sixty seconds?
1: And also the referee is paying no attention to that whatsoever. The referee could, didn't the referee didn't yeah, the referee
3: didn't didn't look at the cuts, he didn't no. administer the doctor to look at the cuts. You know, I think I think at the end of the fight he had something like twelve stitches, which is a lot of stitches Awful in lot. one fight.
1: In round four, and, you know, Jakob, as you know, he could trade punches with anyone and he was doing it with you and that was pretty much round four. But round five, he had a good round despite all his cuts and strange treatment that he's getting. And and you, Duke, I think were probably on the, the back foot for the first time in the fight. Were you starting to feel the pace a little bit?
3: Yeah, listen, he set such a tremendous pace in the fight. And all I knew was I had to go with the pace. As I said, the first three or four rounds, he was just boxing with me. He wasn't trying to beat me. He was just staying in the game. He was staying in in the fight because he had a tactic that he was prepared to stick to from round after round after round. Round five, he switched tactics on me. So now instead of just pity-patting with these shots, he's sitting down on these shots. And he's starting to land bigger shots. The pace is still frenetic, but I'm starting to to get a little bit arm-weary because my output had been quite a lot. And where I'd been inactive in the run-up to the fight, it was just starting to take a little bit of a toll on me.
1: Spence... We're up to the end of round five. Share with Duke and the audience how you're scoring it so far. So
4: listen, round five, I've got a good round for Jakob. He he starts sitting down on his shots. He's gritting his teeth. And it's a real war at this stage. You know, you started well, Duke. Jakob looks like he's coming back. He looked like you're just starting to tire a little bit. And at round six, I've got the fight completely level going into round six. And then round seven... You seem to find a second wind. You seem to start coming back. You're biting on your gum shield. Did you feel at this point that you needed to up your game? At that point, I'm thinking to myself, it's all or nothing.
3: At this point in the fight, round six, round seven, I'm thinking to myself, I've got to get him out of there. You know, because it had gone on a little bit longer than I, than I had anticipated initially. And I've just put everything into everything that I had. Every punch I was throwing, I was just trying to take his head off with. But again... He was slipping the shots, but now what he's doing, he's changed, he switched his attack spins. If you watch the fight closely, he starts switching the attack. Now he's hitting me with really good body shots, single shots, and he's hitting me with a body shot, and then he comes over with a headshot. Now he's mixing it up and down. And I can't get out of the way. Do you see what I mean? Because I've put so much in, my pace is starting to drop a little bit. I'm not landing as cleanly now. I mean, he hit me on the hip, he hit me in the kidneys, he hit me in the chest, he hit me in, in the throat, he hit me in the neck. He's hitting me everywhere shoulder back of the head, eye. And now I'm starting to get, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm starting to feel a little bit sorry for myself.
1: Coming up on Fights of My Life on Talk Sports.
3: Mickey Duff lifted my chin with one finger, he looked me right in the eye and he whispered in my ear. He said to me, if you f- quit, he said, you're beaten dinner by candlelight, son. He said, gritch your teeth. He said, get out there, he said, and fight. He said, you can still win this.
0: visit Stripe.com slash tap iPhone.
2: And look at that blood, it's flowing rather freely. During the fight, of course, it's a major, major problem. The cut has got worse. Look, it's gone over the eye there now as well. I think there might be two cuts by that right eye. And I think now the referee wants the doctor to have a look at this. Now, is this gonna be the end of the fight? The referee will have a close look. The crowd are whistling. They don't want it stopped. He is at home. The doctor is having a well with the referee. What's he going to do? He says, fight on. It's not too bad.
1: Finding my life on Talk Sport. Russ Williams and Spencer Oliver in the company of Duke McKenzie MBE and a fight that took place over the channel at uh, the Pas de Calais, 30th of September, 1990 against Thierry Jacob. And, and Duke, you, you brilliantly described the first seven rounds. Let's get into round eight. Jacob is bleeding pretty heavily from all his cuts. The fight looks to be going your way, and I'm sure that you felt that way. Good round for you in round nine. Uh, the ref calls the doctor to have a look at Jacob's cuts. I think the fight should have been stopped. Do you agree?
3: Yeah, there's argument for the fight being stopped. But in my, in my mind, I'm also saying to myself, I am away from home. And, you know, it would have took a bit of a miracle for them to have stopped the fight, given that they wanted the championship so badly. So they, you know, they allow him to continue. And it's at that point I start doubting myself. Because now I'm saying to myself, I've still got another three, four rounds to go. And the pace is still frenetic. Because the pace doesn't doesn't ease for me at all, from beginning to the end. So he switched his tactics on me. He's hitting me everywhere now. And I did think the fight was going in my way once the doctor had examined his cuts. But then Jackal goes to another level. I've gone to another gear, but he went to a whole new level in terms of his output. Now, if you watch the fight again, you see his output then. It's like he's doubled it. Because... He's just he's just working both hands now because he can feel the fight is slipping away from him also.
2: Now, there's not such a good look about Mackenzie's work in this round. He's starting to look a bit ragged. It's a funny old fight. Just when you think one fight is starting to achieve an ascendancy, back comes the other. He doubled
3: his output. So that means I hit him once, he hits me three times. I throw two, he throws six. The crowd would ban for blood. Every time he throws a punch, the crowd just they just erupt into this euphoric state. And it lifts him.
2: Crowd starting to get behind their man, hoping to urge Jacob onto one last despairing effort. Just when I
3: think, I've got him, and he's going to quit, because he goes back to the corner at one point, and he actually sags onto the ropes, and I think, I've got him. It's at that point, the crowd go loopy, and he jumps up like a jack-in-the-box, and it starts again. You know, what do I have to do to stop this guy? Mm. What do I have to do to keep this guy down? I start to
4: question myself because i still got three rounds to go. And this guy's gone to a whole new level. Yeah, Jakob showed amazing powers of recovery to get through, not just that round, but to get through the earlier rounds as well. He has a good 10th round. Now, the start of round 11, something really bizarre happens. Jakob's tape becomes loose on his glove.
2: And now there's something loose by the glove of Jakob. And this time the referee is going to... Halt the proceedings to make sure that doesn't flap around.
4: They take him back to his corner where now, normally, the corner man would cut the tape from the glove and retape it or whatever. They tied the tape, and this is the first time, Duke, I'd ever seen this. They tied the tape into a bow, which can obviously be really dangerous for you because yeah. there's a knot there. We're in a late stage of the fight. Did you recognize that at the time? Did you, and did you think then that there was going to be, you know, that there, there was a problem?
3: Yeah, because. Once they put the bow into his, uh, into his glove, they tied it with a bun. Like I say, they normally tape it up for security, but mm. it didn't. Now, if you look at the fight again, what he does when he comes into me, we're sort of wrestling in the middle of the ring. He's got his glove and he's actually rubbed it right across my face, on the inside of my face, several times to push me off. You know, I've pulled him on, admittedly, but now he's he's using what you call roughhouse tactics because now he's really roughing me up. You know, the head's going in, the elbow's going in. He's hit me in the throat. He's rubbed the inside of the glove on my eye. You know, I'm feeling quite de- a little bit dejected, if, if, to be honest with you, because I can feel him getting physically
4: stronger and I'm getting tired. I'm getting physically drained. Yeah, you could see in round 11... Jakob had a really big round and it was the first time in the contest that you, Duke, looked like you was in serious trouble. You go back to the corner. What was going through your mind at this point? You've still got one round to go. What was going through your mind after a torrid eleventh round? When I go back to the corner at the end of the eleventh round, I'm
3: spent. When I say spent, I mean I've got nothing left. There's nothing in the tank. My legs are like lead. My hands are heavy. My eyes are a little bit sore, a little bit bruised, my head's Really bruised. I get back to the corner and I'm ready to jack. I'm ready to call it off. I'm just ready. I'm saying to myself, I'm not coming out for another round. I sit down in the corner, Spence, and I kid you not, Mickey Duff was, my, my, was, was obviously in my corner. And I sit down in my corner and I'm feeling really sharp myself. And I think to myself, I'm not getting up. Mickey Duff lifted my chin with one finger. He looked me right in the eye and he whispered in my ear. He said to me, if you quit, he said, you're beating dinner by candlelight, son. He said, grit your teeth. He said, get out there, he said, and fight. He said, you can still win this. Now, I know in my mind, oh, I can't win the fight. Mickey Duff knows I can't win the fight. But what I, what he wanted me to show him was I had some balls and I had a lot of character and I could continue in the fight and, and move on, which I did. I went back to the corner. They patched me up. They threw me out for another round and I gripped my teeth and... I'm chasing Jacob now because I know the fight
4: slipped away from me, but I still think to myself, if I can just nail him, they might stop it. Now, I've been in situations like that, in European title fights like that. Now, Duke, when you're at that stage of the fight and things are not going your way and you've had a really tough round... It's very difficult in that short space of time, that minute, to be able to turn that mindset around Mm. and come out for that 12th and final round. You amazingly done that, somehow done that, (laughs) which is a credit to you, Mickey Duff. But you come out for that 12th round and we're about 15, 20 seconds into the round and you get caught with a big left hook. You go down and at this point, it looks like you might not get up.
2: Well, it's been a bit of a lackadaisical performance by Mackenzie and he's caught by a left hook. I was saying he'd lost his way in the last couple of rounds. Now that could be vital.
4: Where did you find the powers of
3: recovery? Well, when I went down, Spence, it wasn't even a flash knockdown because, as you see, as you see, he threw. A, I had him backed up against the ropes, and I was I was going in to finish him off. But then he switched on me and threw a left hook out of the southpaw stance, and I go bang straight onto it. Mm. When I went down, the first eyes I could see were my brother's, Dudley. Dudley was in, at, at the ringside. And he looked right at me and he picked up the count for me. And he counted one. I could see him I can see it now as clear as anything. He went two, he went three, he went four, he went five, he went six. At six, he said to me, get up. He went seven, he went to me, get up. At eight, I got up. And that's when I knew that I'd beaten the count. But I didn't know where the hell I was. The crowd were absolutely frenetic at this point. The the noise in that in that arena was fever pitch. It really was. And I couldn't hear what was going on anyway. I didn't even hear the referee. But I picked up the count with my brother. And I would got up at, I think it was eight. The next thing I knew, the bell had gone. And the fight was over. You know, I knew the fight was lost. Because it was one of them situations, really, that had I got a knockout, I'd have won. But I
4: wasn't going to get a points decision. Well, I... I scored that fight, Duke, after that knockdown. So I had had you a couple of rounds up, and that was probably being generous to Yekob because I knew the result and I was reliving it. And I did live it with you, mate, because I'd sort of been in them (laughs) situations and I'd been there before. And and so I knew what you was going through. One question I want to ask you about that 12th round, when you went down and you probably knew that things were not going your way because of the build-up to the fight, the way the fight had turned out, the way the fight was turning as it was unfolding, what pulled you up? At that point, when you'd gone down in the 12th, how did you beat that count? Just sheer
3: pride. Because all I, what I had said to myself was, you know, obviously, if I hadn't been knocked out, I had no choice. I didn't want to stay down or take a count. Not at that point, because this is the last round. If that would have happened in round eight, my whole attitude may have been completely different. But it was the last round. And as I said, my brother was there, who did the count with me. When I won in fights, my brother won with me. When I lost, he lost with me. And there was a sense of... Um, I don't want to let myself down, but I don't want to let him down. Because if I cried after fights, he cried with me. If I won, he won with me. That's how we were. So my brother really was my main source of inspiration for getting up during the fight. I mean, it would have been quite easy to have gone down and stayed down, but because he was looking directly at me, as you're looking at me now, Spence, Mm. that's how he looked at me. And he was saying to me, get up. Get up. Just get up.
1: As you said, Duke, um, the bell went in that 12th round. The fight was over. And for both of you fighters, you know, the implications for future steps in your careers, it's very important that both of you had to win this fight. You came out on the wrong side. The the scoring 118, 113, 117, 113, 119, 114, unanimously in favour of Thierry Jacob. When you heard the scoring with those wide margins, Did you think to yourself, well, I was never going to win this fight?
3: No, I never thought I wasn't going to win. I always thought I was going to win. But because the scoring was so, let's say, off the wall, it came as no surprise when they said it was a unanimous decision to Jacob. I mean, personally speaking, I feel he won the fight, but I still like to relive and watch the fight every now and again. (laughs) 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 Yeah,
4: I don't know why you like relieving that, mate, because I relieved that with you <laughs> yesterday when I watched it and, and it was a gruelling fight. It was a tough fight. But the question I want to ask you about this, Duke, is that you was former IBF flyweight champion. This was for the European bantamweight title. You went on to become a freeweight world champion. Do you think that this fight moulded you as a fighter?
3: Yeah, this fight undoubtedly made me the fighter I wanted to become because had I have not have had this fight, I'm not so sure I would have beaten the likes of Gabby Canizales. I'm not yeah. so sure I'd have beaten Jesse Benavides when I won the, the Super Bantamate World title or even the Bantamate World title from Canizales. Those fights were equally as hard, but when I had to dig in and bite down and do what was necessary to win, I had the courage and the strength and the mindset moreover to do it. So this fight came at such a crucial point in my career and like I say, what had happened to me in that fight had never happened before. So I've been hurt in other other fights after the um, Jacob fight, but I knew how to respond. We all want to talk about the victories and, and you know, how we win world titles and, and one thing and another. But it's true to say that it's always about the journey. It's always about how you get to that final destination. That's why I've chosen this as the fight of my life. <music>
2: judges and maybe if they did give it to Mackenzie they'd feel as if they needed a trap door that took them into a tunnel that led up in Tristan da Cunha or something like that and there goes the bell to end it Jacob obviously feels he's got the decision throws his arms up 118 to 113 to Jacob is the first scoring the second one 117 to 113 to Jacob so Jacob has won this and the third 119 to 114 a unanimous if, in my view, slightly lopsided points decision to Thierry Jacob, who wins the European bantamweight title.
1: It's a fight in my life, Russ Williams and Spencer Oliver, with the brilliant Jim McKenzie on this particular edition of the show, the only British fighter to be a world champion at three different weights. And, Duke, we've been through in great detail with yourself and Spencer which I'm sure the audience have loved, the fight against Thierry Jacob, even though the result didn't go your way. Um, for you, it wasn't all uphill, was it, after the Jacob fight, because you tragically lost your brother Dudley, who took his own life at the age of 33. Can you can you just take us through your life at that time? It, I, it's almost unimaginable, I would imagine.
3: Yeah, listen, uh, right, my, my Dudley, right, we were more than brothers... Uh, I've got five other brothers who I love dearly, uh, you know, to this day, I'm so close with my family, it's ridiculous, but, you know, we've got a good relationship, I've got a sister also, that I love dearly, but me and Dudley, we, you know, we grew up together, and we left home at 15, we ran away at 15 from my dad, He was a very, very typical West Indian, very violent man, very, you know, very self-assured, his way or no way, and... My, my dad was probably on the verge when we ran away from home he was on the verge of doing my brother Dudley some serious harm at that point because my dad had totally lost it so yeah we grew up together we done everything together and yeah tragically yeah my brother took his life in uh, 1995 for numerous reasons but none that nobody will ever know it's something that I have to, I live with on a daily basis it's something that I've come to accept and I think that's also part of the healing i'll never understand it but i have to accept it because a there's nothing i can do about it and b wherever he is i'm sure one day i'll get there i'm not in a rush to get there you understand anymore but uh, i just feel that wherever my brother is I'll, you know we'll meet again one day and like i say it's about acceptance it's not something i i can never understand it and It's not the sort of thing where you can just say, you know, it's one of those things. But, you know, male suicide under the age, I think, of about 40 is absolutely prevalent in this country. It's something which is obviously really close to me and and my heart. And I just feel that sometimes I feel I have a almost duty of care. This is why my wife hates me so much sometimes, (laughs) because if we go shopping to Sainsbury's or Asda or whatever, she knows I can't go down aisle three and she goes down aisle four because I go on the missing list. And I just start talking to people because that's just how I am. Because I always, I always think to myself, uh, if I start talking to somebody, I might be the only person they spoke to for the whole day. And you don't know what's going through somebody's mind. I saw my brother on the day that he checked out and I never picked up on anything. It's one of them sad, unfortunate incidences that scarred my life. And I will never, ever be the same as I was and I'll never get over it. But there's a part of me that doesn't really want to get over it because, again, that's about trying to just understand... What he might have been going through, and because I can't ever understand what he went through, it's a part of my life that I have to live with. But I consider myself extremely blessed because I, uh, you know, I've got people that are around me that do love me and care about me and one thing or another. I'm a family man. I've got three kids. I'm married. I've got a beautiful wife. You know, I've got good things happening in my life. So I don't really. It's never going to go away, but I just I manage it. I just manage
4: it on a daily basis. That's all I can do. Juke. You talk about Dudley being at that fight with Jacob and he was at ringside and you was looking into his eyes and that sort of pulled you up. Every and, fight I ever had spent. He was at every fight you ever had. Yeah. There's a personal question I wanted to ask you on that, mate. I know Darren Barker went through similar experiences with his brother that he had lost. And um, did you find it hard to continue boxing after that? Was How difficult was that? Right, so uh, after I lost my brother,
3: I'd lost it for a while. Yeah, I was out in the wilderness. I was just totally gone in my own mind. I was, I don't know where I was, off with the fairies for a while. But, you know, boxing's all I've ever done. Boxing's all, it's the only thing I've ever been successful at. World championships ain't given cheese. You know, you've got to go out and earn it. And it takes a tremendous amount of dedication, resolve, ambition, and desire. So I've used everything that I've ever had to get to that point in my life where I can be called a world champion. And when it's gone, it's gone. It's never coming back. When you finally make up your mind to quit and walk away from the sport, it's gone. So in my very, very last fight that I had against Santiago Rojas in Croydon, actually, the fight was over early, I think the first round, second round. But as this kid hit me with a shot, it wasn't the best shot I've ever taken, Spence. It really wasn't. He hit me. I went over. And I just thought to myself, as I was going down, I just thought to myself, once once I'd actually sat down on the canvas, because I did, I quit. I'd already made up my mind that was enough. I'd had enough. As the referee picked up the count, I looked into his eyes as you're looking at me now. I told to myself, you can count to 100. I'm not getting up. I've had enough. Because I was totally sick to my stomach at that point with life, mm. with boxing. You know, I, j- I didn't
4: really want to be. But was you, was you at that stage, you was used to Dudley looking at you in those situations. We talked about it in the Jakob fight, 12th round. We're not in the first round now, we're in the 12th round. We've mm-hmm. been through 12, 11 gruelling rounds, and your brother's there, and he's counting you up, and, you, and you're getting up. Your mindset had obviously changed from then to when you had your last fight. Is that when you realised it was over? Yeah, I mean, when I was
3: in my very last fight, it was the loneliest place on the world. I really felt like I never had a friend in the world, and... It wasn't, any, it wasn't that nobody cared about me. I just didn't really care about myself. Do you see what I mean? Mm. And Dudley wasn't there. When I was doing my ring walk, it was like um, I could have been anywhere, to be honest with you. I could have been on Mars. I didn't even know where I was or what was going on. Part of Duke McKenzie the boxer had left, basically. Oh, listen, part of Duke McKenzie the boxer had clearly left the building. I felt pretty dead inside. It's a very strange emotion. It's something you can't really explain. It's only something you can you can experience. I can't even begin to tell you really what my true emotions were and how I coped with wow. those emotions. I can understand people that that, that that check out and do things like that because when you hit rock bottom, there's nowhere else you can go. And, you know, you've got people telling you that they love you and one thing or another and showing you that love also. But, you know, for a lot of people, they just can't find, they just can't hold on. But one of the lessons my brother taught me, a very valuable lesson, was how to value and how to love myself. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So all that I am and all that I've ever been taught, really I've learned from my brother, Dudley, who, like I say, had a massive part of my life. Listen, I'm not the only person that it's happened to. It's happened to millions of other guys, yeah. you know, that lose family members, brothers, sisters, whatever, you know, one thing another. But I'm just telling you about my own personal experience sure. And, sure. How I, and how I've coped with my personal tragedy and how in some ways, in some ways, it's it's given me a lot more empathy towards people. You know, I meet people on a regular basis. Uh, I'm a mind ambassador, and I've I've met people over the years that have been in this situation, so I can identify other people's plights.
1: Let's come on to what you're up to now, and I have to say, I I was checking out the website and reading reviews about the jukebox gym, which is down in the neck of the woods that you come from, Croydon Crystal Palace. I mean, this is... a a tremendous thing that you've set up there, and you particularly concentrate on kids, yep. giving them a chance. Just yep. share with the Fight of My Life audience what the Duke Box Gym is—a great name, by the way. Jim <laughs> uh, actually does.
3: Yeah, I've got a, uh, a new gym opened up in uh, my hometown, South Croydon, and uh, yeah, it is called the Duke Box Gym. I offer boxing classes to to anybody really that wants to walk through my door. You know, we do everything on a booking system, so it's all obviously on the on the internet. Sign up online, and I just offer. Yeah, you know, I mean, listen. First and foremost, it's, it's a boxing gym, and I I offer discipline. I offer. I teach kids about respect. I teach kids about nutrition. I teach the kids about how to carry themselves. I talk to them every day about being, for the want of a word, a better person. You know, I get some kids that are a little bit wayward. Not all of them are, but some of them are. Uh, but most of the kids that come from my door are just lovely genuine, regular kids that just want the, what I call the boxing experience. So I'm happy now to pass on my knowledge and my wisdom, and my experience onto them and give them, you know, a little bit of a fighting chance. Because, you know, a lot of kids now are going to school getting bullied or, you know, they're walking home and, you know, what this world is like. It's just a crazy place and they just want to learn a little bit of self-defence. So, you know, it gives them
4: a lot of confidence as well. But that's that part of the job is absolutely priceless for me. I think what you're doing with the gym, et cetera, and what you've done, you know, since you've hung the gloves up is fantastic, mate. I think it's a, you're a credit to the sport. There's one question I want to ask you before we leave you. If you could change anything that happened through your career, what would it be and why? The one thing I will change, there's only one fight in my whole of my
3: career that I honestly thought I won, but I never got the decision. So I'm, I moved up to my fourth weight division, And again, it's a European title fight. I fight a guy called Medi Labduni. Again, it's away from home, in his backyard. I thought I won it. Mm. You know, there wasn't any knockdowns. There wasn't any... Listen, anything they tried in the fight, I was used to from the Jacob fight. So all the strokes they tried to pull, they just didn't happen this time. I was more than ready for it. But I think I won that fight against Medi Medi Labduni. And
4: um, you had a habit of travelling to the other guy's backyard yeah. and wanting to get <laughs> <Yeah>. fired. <laughs> you know, listen, that's where the money was. So, you know, listen, yeah. have gumshoe
3: will travel and that's what you've got to go where the dollar is. Uh, you know, listen, I had a great manager, like Sam Mickey Duff, so I, I did what was necessary.
1: Duke, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much for coming on Fight of My Life with myself and Spencer. Absolutely fascinating show. Fight didn't go your way, but a lot of good came out of it and uh, we thank you very much watch this space plenty more boxing live stories coming up on talk sport until next time from spencer myself and Jim mckenzie mbe it's goodbye
0: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time